0: Open your Bibles to the Book of Ecclesiastes, chapter seven. Excuse me a moment, there's a mess up here. Some of it's my fault. Let's bow for prayer. Father, it truly is a wonderful thing to be able to gather together as Christians. And Father, to gather together here and to come and honor you, to hear your word being read, to pray with each other, to sing songs, Lord, which speak of your majesty and your greatness and your provision for us. To be with those, Father, who are like-minded in their love and adoration for you, and Lord, as we now come to your word, will we continue to worship you? Our desire is to together come and to look at the scripture, to consider the things that it says. Our desire, Father, is to continue to be challenged and to be changed by your word. And so, Father, we ask that you would give to us clarity of thought. The Lord, you would help us to focus upon your word and its meaning but also along with this father that it would be the desire of our heart to apply your word to the way we think to the way that we live to the way that we make decisions knowing lord that if we do that that we will be honoring you that we'll be maturing in the faith and it will go well with us we thank you father again that you have preserved your word for us Pray, Lord, that it would always be not just special to us in a sentimental way, but Lord, that it would be special and extremely important to us. And so we thank you and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and I'll begin reading in verse 21. Solomon writes, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I would be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search, to search out, to seek wisdom and and to seek the scheme of things. To know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I have found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. As we look at this passage this morning, Solomon here is really searching for an explanation. Remember that what it is that he's trying to explain is all these various things that he's been observing. Remember, he's he's troubled by uh, all the things that he's looked at. He's troubled because as he looks at them, things are not the way they ought to be. They're not the way he thinks they should be. Things um, are, there seems to be conf- confliction in the way things are taking place. He has seen that which is right happening, but he's also seen evil. He sees evil going unpunished. He sees that which is righteous being punished, and he's, he's, he can't figure all this out. And it's not just that he wants to figure out why these things are happening, because what he's trying to get, get, trying to, get to is what does all of it mean? He wants to understand meaning in life. He wants to know what value there is in these things. Not just again so he can understand them, so to speak, intellectually, but so that he can make sense of his own life. So he can make sense of his existence. He wants to have understanding of these things. Solomon has confessed already, and is confessing here, that he lacks the wisdom that has the capacity to answer life's questions. Remember, on his own, with all the wisdom that he has, he is unable to figure out what all these things mean. Then, especially so when you kind of throw in what I've already mentioned, all the inequities of life. And then, of course, that other question that keeps popping up or the other issue that keeps popping up, and that is the very unpopular subject of death. In fact, I was thinking about this the other day, and if you you ever have a party at your house and you just, you're just trying to find a nice way to, to get people to go home? Talk about death. Just so you know, I've been thinking about death recently. Um, or have you been thinking about death when you die? Uh, and soon people will find excuses to, uh, to go. Uh, they have to go and pay the babysitter, um, you know, whatever it happens to be. But it's, it's a good way to, uh, to kind of empty the room, so to speak. Of course, you'll probably find the one guy we say, yeah, man, I've been thinking a lot about that. I was reading the philosophers the other day, and then you're done for um, when that happens. But anyway, hopefully you'll know who that guy is and you can avoid him. But, uh, but the failure, again, that Solomon is talking about, the failure that he's experiencing, lies partly in the fact that, again, he's relying really on his own desire and his own will to be wise because true wisdom comes from God. And some have even brought this up, and as you read through different commentaries, some will say, now wait a minute, Solomon can't really mean that by what he's been talking about, that he can't figure all this out by the wisdom that he has, that, that wisdom has failed him, because God is the one who's granted him an abundance of wisdom. Well, remember, God gave him wisdom primarily to discern and to administer justice, and he's already mentioned to us as we've kind of worked our way through it, that even though he does have a great deal of wisdom, it doesn't tell him or explain to him the meaning of life. That knowledge is eluding him. And of course, keep in mind, the way that he is attacking all of these issues. As he writes this, he has, I don't know if he's actually purposely done this, but the, but the intent of the letter seems to be that he's, he's put God kind of out of the picture. And so, so outside of God, Outside of God's revelation, this is what I'm seeing, this is what I'm trying to figure out, and this is what I'm finding. Again, we already know that God is the only one who is all-wise. No human being possesses the capacity to fully understand God's plan and program, which is what all of this is. As we live in his world that he's created, this is God's plan. This is God's program. Solomon's search for that kind of wisdom brought him to the same question and and the same conclusions that we saw that were uh, brought about and, and reached by Job. Remember that when your kids go to college, if they take an introduction to philosophy class, you don't have to know what the philosophers say to know that they're wrong. They're not wrong on everything, but remember their beginning point is wrong. The beginning point is your foundation. That's, everything is built on that. And that's why the scripture tells us that what is the beginning of wisdom? Well, it's, it's the fear of God. What's the beginning of knowledge? Well, it's the fear of God. So if man ignores that, he begins with a different foundation, which is his own mind, his own thoughts, whatever it happens to be. He excludes God. No matter how brilliant he or she may be, they're not going to come to the right conclusions. They're, they're going to run into problems. And so that's why at times reading philosophers, it can be very confusing. I think oftentimes they can become very confused, to say the least. But left to themselves, they they don't come up with meaning in life. And there are, there's a, I don't know if there's a growing number of philosophers that do this because there's a lot that goes into someone's philosophy, especially those who are academics. You know, pride kind of enters in and they, they may espouse a certain type of philosophy and even though it Someone else may come along who's smarter and say, yeah, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and here's the 25 reasons why. You know, they may kind of, you know, discount all of that because, you know, their books and and what they stand for is kind of on the line, and so they're going to defend it. You know, people do do that. You know, they're going to defend a position even though they may may have been proven wrong. But the idea is, is that in in all this philosophy, no matter how brilliant they are, they're beginning with the wrong starting point. That is why we need to begin with that. It's not that Christians cannot engage in philosophical thought we can but we begin with the fact that god is that god has given commands that god has created that makes a difference in where we go it helps us to understand we we want to make sure we have a biblical approach to everything in life it really will help us to answer all of these questions and remember that that being biblical in essence does not mean that we're simplistic right even though the phrase God or the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom is a simple phrase, it's not simplistic. There's a great deal to that. And if we dig into that, it begins to reveal a great deal to us. That's all we have to be careful, even in our day-to-day conversations with people. You, you may be talking to a friend. Let's say you, you've been friends with this individual for a long time, and they, and they claim to be Christian. And they say, well, I just want you to know, because you're going to hear it pretty soon, but you know, my wife and I are having a lot of problems, and we're going to get a divorce. And you might want to say this, or maybe you will say this, and I don't know what you and your wife are doing, but the Bible says that's a sin. You can't do that. Now, that's true. But you shouldn't end the conversation there. And that's sometimes where we mess up, as if that's all the Bible has to say. The Bible has a whole lot more to say. We need to ask, well, what's going on? Oh, well, you know, we just, we just kind of drifted apart. But well, the Bible has something to say about that as well. The Bible, if you, when you read through the Scriptures, it tells you, no, you guys have not drifted apart. You guys have ignored each other. That's what the Scriptures say. You're not working on the relationship. And so what's going on? So you've drifted apart. Like, like what's happening? Well, you know, she, it ends up being, you know, she lives her life, I live my life. Whoa, we got another problem. You know, because the Bible talks about the fact that when you come together, you, you become one flesh, it's one life. You're not supposed to be living your life and her life. That's not how life's supposed to work. What are you doing? So then you may ask another question. So are you taking the lead in, in the relationship with your wife? You know, are, are, you, uh, are, are you trying to follow what the Scripture says about how you are to treat your wife? Well, you don't understand it. You know, I, I, just, I just don't have those feelings anymore. Whoa, time out. The Bible has something to say about that as well. It doesn't matter what your feelings are because your love for your wife is to be much stronger than just how you feel at the moment. You have committed yourself to her well-being. You've committed yourself to what is best for her in every aspect of life. You took a vow before God that that is what you are committed to. It doesn't matter what you're feeling at the moment. That commitment doesn't change because that's what actual love is. You're not always going to feel lovey-dovey towards each other. You're going to be angry at times. So, you see, the Bible addresses all of that. That is your philosophy. If your philosophy is different, because sometimes what will happen is, is, you know, it's your friend, they're getting divorced, you're sad to hear that. And you say, well, I'm just so sad to hear that. But, you know, I mean, we we need to be happy. What does that even mean? So are you saying because we need to be happy? Yes, you need to throw your wife away. We're not going to say it like that. But that's what we end up promoting and somehow, oh yeah, marriage should be easy. It doesn't require work. Yeah, you just get rid of her. You know, what, what I mean, what is she doing to you, man? we don't we don't want to go there. And of course the end of the individual would say, Well, I just know this. He makes it to you, I know that God doesn't want me to be happy. Well, or be unhappy. You may we say, Well, I, I don't, I'm not gonna say that God wants you to be unhappy, but I don't think that's the most important thing. And so we need to get our priorities right. And so as you continue to delve into it a little bit, the Bible has something to say about all of that to truly help and lead, 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 you know, give us wisdom in that situation. And we need to follow what it says. So here, what Solomon is talking about, having the capacity, man does not have the capacity apart from God to figure it all out. What you'll notice on the news sometimes is there are certain questions people aren't asking. But... In case you're unaware of this, you do know that things in the world are getting worse. There are more suicides in our country than before. There are reasons for that. I don't think there's just one. But I do think a lot of those reasons tie into the mass of of Americans and their attitudes towards God and the scripture and church and all that. Both believers and non-believers alike the direction that our society is going. There are many reasons for that. But I do know that in that equation, one of the things that is influencing all those things from one degree to another is the abandoning of what the Scripture says. Moving away from the Bible as being the moral foundation, as being what is true. In fact, when it comes to individuals trying to argue for certain moral positions sometimes, if, if you're listening to those who are arguing for a conservative position, if they're not using the scripture, which most of them don't, sometimes when you hear them, even though what they're saying can sound good because you might agree with it, you, you might want to take the position of an antagonist and just say, oh, yeah, but without the Bible, why should we do that? Why, why should we take the conservative approach? Why? What's the reason for that? It can't be based on truth because remember that for most things you and I consider to be truth because it relates all the way back to what the scripture says. Eliminate that. What is the grounds for truth? You don't have any. It can be popular opinion, it can be whoever has the most money, whoever has the most power, whatever it happens to be, you're going to end up with that type of thing. We're not going to end up with absolute truth so, again, no human being on his own, apart from God, can fully understand anything about life, much less come up with the answer to what it is that gives meaning to life. Ultimate wisdom does not reside in the land of the living, so to speak. But God knows its place. It is remote. It is exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it on their own? The answer is no one. Solomon himself sets out, as you read through these verses, he sets out to discover the ultimate wisdom. He says, I directed my mind, or you could say it this way, I and my heart looked around. He's determined to try to understand this, to come to an understanding. The threefold description as you look at this of his goal is he wants to know, he wants to investigate, he is also going to seek. That summarizes his approach. Verse 25, where he says, I have turned my heart to know the scheme of things the esv and the niv the phrase is used the scheme of things the new american standards says he seeks to know the explanation or the explanation of things the new king james will read it this way he says he's turned his heart to know the reason of things but he's trying to get to the bottom of it he wants to get to the why these things are happening not just some law but why why that law why this The writer, which is Solomon, is indicating that he is endeavoring to make an intellectual accounting of the events of the universe, which again is the events of day-to-day living. Solomon added up all that he had learned, and what was the outcome? Before revealing his outcome, he reminds us that the scope of his search includes seeking knowledge of the wickedness and the delusions of foolishness. In other words, he is looking at everything in case there's an answer there. He said earlier in chapter 3, he said, man will, will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. He made another observation in chapter 7 and verse 14. Again, man will not discover anything that will be after him. In verse 24, which he comes to, he asked the question, who, would, who can discover it? Obviously, no one can. And again, not even someone with the wisdom of Solomon. However, as we continue to read, we're going to be in for a shock because Solomon not only repeats the impossibility of success in his search, he associates his discovery with a relationship to a seductress. And this has really thrown people for a loop. Verse 26, he says, I, he says, I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. What is he talking about? Or is he talking about some, Has some lady broken his heart? And he's saying, you know what? There's one thing worse than death. I'm not going to tell you her name, but she's over there in that group. And man, she's just messed me up. But that's, that, I don't think that's what he's talking about. Uh, people have tried to identify this woman. In fact, one guy even said this. This is an old commentary. I just thought this was just a great phrase. The guy says, well, what Solomon is saying is this. Because of sin, married life will be a war instead of joy. That's <laughs> it's hilarious. And I know some of you think that from time to time. And it's a war. I, I have told my wife before this, I've told Cindy, because, you know, we don't get along perfectly all the time, because sometimes I can be a little ornery. But I've told her, I said, I want you to know, sweetheart, out of all the people in the world I could fight with, I'd rather fight with you. And so, you know, that's, we kind of, we move along that way. So the thing is, I don't, that's not what Solomon is saying. I don't think Solomon is telling us that married life is going to be war instead of joy think a better understanding of this is simply that this woman is to be taken figuratively. We have a a woman who is who represents folly in the book of Proverbs in chapter 9. Wisdom and folly permeate the immediate context of what we're looking at. And so I think that the idea that that woman is foolishness here uh, or that this that what he's talking about here is this figurative representation of folly makes sense. He's done it before, he's doing it here. And and he wants us to remember that again Solomon had many wives, and he had a thousand, basically, when you combine the wives and concubines, he, he's got a whole mess of them. And so he was, he was close to all these women, and, and all they did was turn his heart away from God. Now, God told him that would happen, and he, and he just basically ignored what God said. And you read First Kings 11, it states it that emphatically that's exactly what took place. It turned his heart away from God. If any man would know the effect of a seductress, that man would have been Solomon. And, of course, when you read through Proverbs, he instructs his son throughout the book of Proverbs about the seductress woman, about the evil woman and staying away from her and why that's important. But also keep in mind that when you read through the book of Proverbs, Solomon also depicted wisdom as a woman. He does that uh, when you right from the get-go in chapter 1. He speaks highly of a number of good women uh, at, at different times. So the reason why I point that out is that this is not some kind of a uh, slash against, against women in general it's not because he had a thousand wives he had a miserable life that he hates all women that's not what's happening here with this so with solomon and then of course some have been even more confused thinking that maybe that's what he's doing because later on he says i have found one man among a thousand but i have not found a woman among these and he's really using hyperbole when he, when he talks about this uh he's talking about the uniqueness of one individual of, of one that is embody, the embodiment of wisdom and what he's saying is, is, is as you can look at a 1,000 people. He just picks a big number. He's not trying to think of just these 1,000 women over here. But it's just a big number that when he looks, he, he can't find this. He found one out of all of them. And that's really what he's getting at. So today, because of the overemphasis, the, you know, the gender wars and being politically correct, uh, people might approach this and they, they think that Solomon is being a male chauvinist that there's a lot of sexism, and that's not even close to what he's trying to do here in all of this. Solomon, as we know, did marry pagan women of influence, and he tried to use them politically and all that type of thing. And, uh, you know, I, I, he, that's not what he's getting at. And I don't really know if any of those women would have been, would have been good, so to speak, but the Bible really doesn't make any comment about that. But even though Solomon had a thousand wives, there's no guarantee that in this thousand that he's going to find one that's wise He's just speaking again in general when he, when he goes in this direction. Again, remember this, that as you read through Proverbs or read through Ecclesiastes, that if folly involves love of money, then the Bible says to flee. If your folly involves lust, the Bible says to flee. So, it so whether the person representing the folly is male or female, the point is, is to flee, to, to, to flee from foolishness. So when you get back to his desire, which in verse 27 is to understand the scheme of things, and he wants to systematically try to work this out, he wants to to figure out what's going on here, as he looks at people, he can't find the answer, no matter how many people he looks at and speaks to. In the end, he also wants us to know that God is not to blame, because in verse 29 he says, see, this alone I found, that God God has made man upright, but... They have sought out many schemes. So the word schemes that he uses here refers to someone's plans, maybe even their evil intentions that a person uh, has, or, they, or someone has discovered someone's evil intentions. So these schemes he's talking about is not necessarily uh, fostering uprightness. So the basic idea of the word is where one is employing the mind in thinking, in thinking about something. So the reference so much is, is not so much in getting understanding, which is interesting, but as to the creating of a new idea. So, he's, he's not, so the use of this word doesn't necessarily mean that he's doing all these things to necessarily just get understanding for himself or just understand these things. It's like he wants to be led to a new idea he, because he wants, he's not finding what he's looking for here. And again, he's really very troubled by this. And there are individuals, I do think, there are individuals who really are trying to figure out life in the world in which we live in. They're really trying to figure it out. They're trying to figure it out apart from God. And they're serious about it. And so it does lead them to despair. It does lead them at times maybe to think suicidal thoughts. It may, it may lead them to, being, to living even much more self-centered than they have before. That does take place. It doesn't mean that the search itself is not necessarily sincere. They're just not really honest in everything that they're doing and everything we do is always complicated by our own selfishness and our self-centeredness but we need to keep in mind because the longer that we are believers the more settled we become in living life we all tend to automatically view life in a particular way we don't even think about it we we view life really biblically now some of us may view life much more biblically than others but because of the truth of the Word of God and what we're accustomed to and how we view things and our belief in God and answering prayer and that Christ is coming in the future and that we're going to be with Him and and sin's going to finally be eradicated, all those things really play a part in the way we deal with life and the way we approach life. And it affects the way that we, at times, at least it should, affect the way we handle things emotionally. Because if it doesn't affect the way we handle things emotionally, remember, our emotions can carry us in the wrong direction and go a long way in a bad direction. And that's why we're encouraged to have our emotions under control. We are to be in every facet of our, of our humanity to be in submission to the word of God and what it says. Again, that's not meaning that we cannot be spontaneous in living life. It doesn't mean that we can't have great happiness and experience great sorrow. We'll have all of those things, but we don't live by those things. Those things aren't to guide us. They're not to control us. We are to control it. We are to control our lives. But again, if the individual is maybe like Solomon in the sense that they're not beginning with the fear of God. There's a lot of inner turmoil. And so we need to remind ourselves, hopefully to, to remind us to have compassion on our non-believing friends and coworkers. There's, there may be a lot of stuff going on in their head. There may be a lot of frustration that comes out when they're at home. It doesn't always mean that they're, they're hitting their wife. It doesn't always mean that. But in their strain, in their spending habits, in what they think about, think about, what they dream about, the way they treat people, all, of those, all those things they're doing is a result of what it is that's going on in here and in here. And many of them are just miserable. And it may be that, I don't know if they always intend to, but they're going to make everyone else around them miserable too. Because, you know, there's that old saying, misery loves company. And there's actually a lot of truth in that. And so there's just a lot of frustration. And so we need to remind ourselves that our non-believing friends are not like us. They do not have the same foundation that we have. They may appear to be very content and happy on the outside. Very few of them really are. I'm not going to say none of them are, but very few of them really are. And so that's why we must pray for them and ask that God would continue to work in their heart and perhaps provide you opportunities to begin maybe to get a word in here or there. You, You may not be able to have the time to have a long treatise with them about going back and forth about the meaning of life. You may have that one day, but it may be just a lot of little seeds we're dropping here and there along the way. But we need to take advantage of those opportunities because they're perishing. They're falling apart on the inside. They need the answer that only the gospel can give them. And we can, for as much as we know that and believe it, we can forget it. And just, you know, almost, we almost kind of go back to a default position, which is, you know, they they may suddenly just, for in a brief moment, explain to you how things are tough at home. And you you may end up saying, with all the brilliance, yeah, well, sometimes we've got to tough it out. That is, that is not the direction we should be going in. Even if you're unsure as to what to say at the moment, because, you know, we kind of get the brain freeze, and like, oh, I know I should be saying something good about God, but I have no idea what to say. And you just say, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. You know, is there anything I can, you know, you can just say, I, I believe that God answers prayer, and I'd be more than happy to pray for you. Is there something I can pray for you about? You have no idea what that might do. And sometimes we're afraid because we're afraid of how they might respond. We don't know how they're going to respond. We just kind of speculate how they're going to respond. And it's always the worst case scenario. Just let them know you care. And you may think, well, they don't believe in prayer. Well, why should they? That's not the point. The fact that they don't believe in prayer doesn't mean their prayer is of no value. You know better. Well, I know they don't pray. Well, that's probably a good thing because God's not going to answer their prayer anyway. He's going to answer your prayer. They don't believe. So do that. But we, need, but we need to engage them. And again, remember all of these things, all this stuff that is talking about, a lot of people go through this, maybe not to the degree that he is. They're not, they're not thinking it out like he is, but they're still experiencing the same frustration. And so we need to make sure that uh, uh, we are there to help them. In, again, in this phrase where he says that he wants to understand the scheme of things, um, the Hebrew word that's used, there's six different variations uh, a basic thought that can be distinguished when you work your way through the old testament but again most frequently the idea here is really more of planning and devising so when you think about that here's the deal from the fall of Adam and Eve till today people have turned away from God and away from wisdom and they have walked the path of folly remember again that's what verse 29 is saying I found this God has made man upright but they have sought out many schemes. They have, it means their gods over here. They go in this way. What does Romans 1 say? Man knows that God exists. He suppresses that. He doesn't want to think about it. He doesn't want to consider it. He wants to go his own direction. Isaiah 53, 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one have turned to his own way. So the chapter here in Ecclesiastes is concluding with the observation that people pervert the way of God they bend that which he has created straight. There is some irony here because he's asked before or he's stated before that no man can straighten what God has bent. And it's almost like he's saying God has made us straight and we now purposely bend it. And, that's, and he wants to get to, again, to the enigma of all of this. That again, that when he, he sees all this and he learns all these things and he goes to grasp the answer and it's like grabbing smoke. It just eludes him. It's almost like when, when you're having a conversation with somebody and you say, I know the answer's on the tip of my tongue and I just, I can't get it. It's like you know it, but you can't recall it. This is kind of where he's at. He's like, he's right on the verge. He knows that he, he can just, he can, he can spill the beans, so to speak, but he can't. Because he can't bring it to his mind. It's not there, it eludes him. Chuck Swindoll had, had a, a, in one of his books where he talked about the book of Ecclesiastes. When he works his way through chapter 7, he comes to some questions that, uh, that we might need to think about uh, in dealing with these things. Because again, remember that God wants us to be thinking Christians. He wants us to think about our life, about life in general, about God, and how God relates to who we are, and how does God's how does God's word relate to the way that we live? When, when you think about your friends, what does God's word say about what they're going through? How do I understand that? How do I help them? It, it, it relates to all of this, and so the questions he asks is number one: is when, when it comes to regarding balance in your life, he says, "Is wisdom guarding us from extremes?" Now, of course, part of the assumption with this is when we're speaking of wisdom. We're not speaking of man's wisdom. We're speaking of the wisdom that we are to, to derive from the Word of God. And already, we've already talked a little bit about that uh, last week. But the idea is, is that is wisdom guarding us from extremes? And, and, and even the extremes we can be involved in at times might seem to be a good thing, but we have to be careful. We, we don't want to go off on a tangent. In other words, you don't want to be so committed, let's say, to, to doing good for certain people that you, example, you abandon your family. We're supposed to do both. Yes, you do good here, but you don't ever abandon your family. You never do that. Um, God has never called you to sacrifice your family uh, for the sake of ministry. It's just not there. Um, I do believe this with all my heart, that there will be times when any of us are doing ministry, especially those who do full-time ministry, there may may be times that our families will have to make sacrifices. That's different than the individual saying that somehow I'm going to sacrifice my family for the sake of ministry. There's two completely different things. And, and we're forbidden to do that. And even some of the great heroes of the past. Of the faith. They've done that. And we have to recognize that they messed up. When they did it. it was wrong. And we have to seek to understand. Because remember God doesn't need any of us. No matter how great the thing is that we're doing. It's not about our greatness. And what we can get done. It's what God can get done through us. And we just need to, to leave those things with him. But secondly, so the first one is, is, is wisdom guarding us from extremes? Secondly, is, is uh, wisdom keeping us stable? Right, we, we, need, we, you know, we, we need to be strong in the Lord. We need to be strong for the Lord. And so I need to live by wisdom so that, so that I am stable, uh, so that I don't approach life in a weakened condition or, or do this in a weakened condition, but I'm, I'm making the right decisions. So is wisdom keeping me stable? And then lastly, is wisdom clearing our minds? So in other words, I need to have insight, and I want to make sure that I'm not, that my, it's not only that my, my thinking might be corrupted, but again, my thinking can be corrupted if I'm not thinking in the right way. I want to think through scripture. Like again, back to the illustration of the man, your friend's getting a divorce, and we just make the declaration, well, God hates divorce, that's a sin, you can't do that, and then you walk away. You're not thinking clearly when you end the conversation with that. Wisdom says, there's, the Bible says much more about this man's situation than it's a sin to get a divorce. There's much more that's there. So we want to think clearly. And so we want to, as we read the word of God, we want to ask God to help us then. To give us the wisdom so that he will guard us from extremes. To give us wisdom so that we will remain stable, uh, being level-headed. And then the last one, which is that we as individuals will be clear thinking, meaning that we're not swayed to and fro with fads or what someone thinks about me, but I am guided by the clear teaching of what the word of God says. That's the, that's the wisdom that we need we would, we would then not end up like Solomon because he was in a mess and, I, and I'm really excited about <clears throat> next week as we move into chapter eight because I do think that there are some things there that are going to be extremely detailed to really help us with, the, with some very deep and troubling things with life we want to make sure that we, that we understand that what the word of God says about the way we are to live in think and and interact with people and how we evaluate the way that we feel the word of God is extremely helpful and, and and I'm I'm hoping that we will really grasp uh life and have an understanding of life because of what scripture says but again going back to the simple statements that Solomon who wrote this book said in Proverbs the beginning of knowledge is the fear of God the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God let's pray Father, we thank you again for your grace. And Father, we pray that most of us believe the gospel and we we know that that is the answer. Help us, Father, not only to live the gospel, but help us, Father, to recognize that the people that we know that are not believers, that things are not as they seem to be often, that we have the right to assume within ourselves that there's much trouble there because they are human beings and the scripture explains to us what's going on in their minds, and their hearts. Help us, Father, to have great compassion for those around us. Help us realize, Father, that the gospel really is the answer and that part of our desire to comfort them and to help them, to see them do better, to see them thrive, that a large part of that must be centered on us finding a way with your help to share the gospel of Christ with them. Because, Father, we know, we know this about all of our unbelieving friends, that if they believed today, their life would be immediately better because their burdens would be shared by you. And the burden of their sin would be lifted. So, Father, I pray that you remind us of that. I also pray, Lord, that if there are those here today who... Are still under the weight of their sin. They understand that as they have tried their best with all of their intellect to make right decisions and to do right, they still find life to be unfulfilling. They still have too many moments of sadness, or they have moments of sadness with no real comfort. They're still trying to find ways to escape responsibility. They really would rather be numb to many things. They may even be living in fear of certain things. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to come to understand the truth of the gospel. And that when we talk about believing in Christ, when we talk about being forgiven of our sins, that even though all these things are in one sense very simple to understand, again, this is not a simplistic view of life. Because the gospel truly does in every way affects and reaches and touches every aspect of life and redeems it. And so, Father, we pray that as believers that we will experience and be aware of your redemption. And then we would desire with all of our heart, mind, and soul to share that wonderful gift with those that we know. And so, Father, I pray that you would work with each one of us according to our needs and bless us. We do thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.